Welcome to our episode 11 of the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast. This month, we're going to be talking about respiratory with a specific focus on pulmonary embolism, its diagnostic modalities, treatment, and risk stratifying patients that we see in our emergency departments. We've got a couple of absolutely amazing guest speakers today, but what we'll do, as we always do, is we'll do a roundtable introduction. So my name's Pramod. I'm a FASM working at Westmead and Nepean Hospital, and I'll be uh, trying to facilitate today's episode. My name is Naveen. I'm one of the residents also at Westmead ED at the moment and doing an EDSRM year next year. My name is Arwen. I am shortly going to be a FASM. I'm also the Biocontainment Centre Fellow for the NBC upstairs, which uh, has zero bearing on today's podcast, but I thought I'd mention it. Hi, this is Caroline, just back for another month. Hi, it's Samurda. Nice to have you listen to us. Hi, it's Kit, rejoining again. Hi, it's Harry. Happy to be here again. Awesome. Our first paper is about the sort of eternal question of old people and D-dimers. I remember the first catastrophic face palm I got from my supervising facem when I ordered a D-dimer on an 89-year-old person. It's nice to see the literature has come a little bit of the way to help me make that decision in a more competent manner. So, Bean, do you want to take it away for us? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ramad. Yeah, even as a naive resident, nothing scares me more than ordering a D-dimer. You're a wise man. Um, <laughs> essentially, the study I looked at is it was called the Relax B study published in May this year. And it's by the same authors who actually published the study in 2010 that came up with the age-adjusted D-dimer as a cutoff. And then uh, also published the landmark study in 2014, which was called the Adjust B study, uh, which essentially validated the age-adjusted cutoff. So the purpose of this study was essentially a prospective management outcome study to, I guess, function as an additional validation step to analyze the analysis of the age-adjusted D-dimer in everyday clinical practice. So it was quite a, a neatly designed study. The primary outcome that they looked at was the incidence of symptomatic thromboembolic events in follow-up in patients for whom a PE had been excluded based on a negative D-dimer with the age-adjusted cutoff and a low pretest probability. They also looked at a secondary outcome being the proportion of patients uh, with a D-dimer between the conventional cutoff of 0.5 and the age-adjusted D-dimer cutoff. So to look at uh, how many patients specifically over the age of 75 could be excluded based on the adjusted D-dimer cutoffs. Essentially, what they did was screen 2,148 consecutive patients who were outpatients across a number of multi-centers in Europe. Patients were essentially those with a suspected PE, but excluded based off of a low pretest probability and a negative D-dimer. Of the 1,507 patients, there were 1,206 who were essentially at D-dimers below 0.5, so just the conventional cutoff and was screened out. And then another 300 patients who had a D-dimer between 0.5 and their age-adjusted cutoff. So there was about 77 patients of these that were excluded from the analysis for a number of reasons. There were a few that were lost to follow-up, a few that were started on anticoagulation therapy for reasons other than a VT and so were excluded. Essentially, the authors followed them up at the three-month point and then used uh, objective analysis to see how many of them had developed a PE or a VTE and also looked at a proportion of the people who had died in that group to see if there was a chance that they could have had a thromboembolic event. In terms of the, the results of the patients who had a, a D-dimer less than just the conventional 0.5, there were 19 possible thromboembolic events at the three-month cutoff period, of which there were two deaths and only one of the, of the entire cohort, so one of the 1,206 patients who had been excluded with the D-dimer, 
who had an actual VTE. Uh, this was a non-fatal PE. And so it was a, a essentially a, a rate of 0.09% with a very narrow confidence interval. The proportion of people between the 05 uh, and the age-adjusted cutoff was 301, of which 276 people completed follow-up without any anticoagulation. Uh, there were 10 possible thromboembolic events, but on objective analysis, none of these people actually had AVT. Uh, so zero of the 269 people who had a PE excluded with the age-adjusted cutoff actually had a, a VT event. In terms of diagnostic usefulness, which was uh, the, well, one of the, the endpoints of the study, and I suppose one of the most important strengths of the study, the age-adjusted cutoff had about a 20% increase in the number of negative D-dimer tests. This was especially pronounced in people over the age of 50. There was an increase of about 35% in people over the age of 50 and an increase uh, of 67% of negative D-dimers in people over the age of 75, which uh, I suppose has added benefits because these are the older people who have generally present with worse renal function, generally can't tolerate CTPAs, and you're saving invasive, quite expensive uh, analyses on them. The other strengths of the study, the large cohort size across uh, three different countries, multi-center, um, study and the results were closely matched both prospective and retrospective uh, analyses of the age-adjusted D-dimer cutoff done across uh, all the previous years since 2010 when it first came about. I think one of the other strengths was also the way they evaluated for a PE at the three-month follow-up. Uh, so they had three independent experts who were blinded to the D-dimer cutoffs, who essentially looked at the patients with a, a Doppler to evaluate for a DVT and a CTP or a VQ to look for a uh, PE. In terms of limitations, I suppose one of the things was that this wasn't a randomized control trial. There were also about 20-something patients lost to follow-up, which accounted for about a percentage and a half. One of the other things that I, I noticed was that across the whole group, so across the 1,507 patients, there were nine deaths that the authors attributed to a cause other than a PE, but there was no specific explanation of, of what the events were or what, or how, how, I suppose, how they got to the conclusion that this wasn't a thromboembolic event. The paper provides a lot of real pragmatic information as a clinician practicing sort of on the floor in terms of evaluating these investigations and determining who may or may not be suitable to perform a D-dimer on. I think you've covered the strengths and weaknesses of the paper reasonably thoroughly. I think it does suffer from some pragmatic methodological flaws that sort of affect most ED studies. Obviously, you mentioned the fact that obviously it's not a randomized controlled trial, but it's, that's not necessarily the best way to answer this kind of clinical question, I think. Um, and obviously the follow-up issue. In general, and correct me if I'm wrong, Arwen or, or Kevin Lai, who's joined us, one of our ED staff specialists um, at Westmead, but for the most part, the, the, the loss to follow-up, acceptable loss to follow-up rate would be sort of around 10% uh, in most papers and a, a loss to follow-up rate of less than to is pretty it's acceptable. Yeah, it's actually quite good. I take your point about the absence of correct diagnosis in those patients who had who passed away at the three month mark. But once again, I don't really see a way to force people to have autopsies done on them. Uh, that would be the only real way to tell. And that might be a little bit much in the consent process to say that, you know. Yeah, I guess you could look at death certificate data if you had access to that sort of stuff mm. but it's also the the number of people who die the nine out of the however many thousands it was is statistically very small and probably not unexpected in a population that size that you would have fatalities unrelated to PEs. Exactly. Uh, when I was hoping you could maybe chime in a little bit to 
what you thought some of the benefits of this paper were in a pragmatic sense. I know I've got my thoughts, but I'd be interested to hear what you say. I liked this paper. I agree with both of your points on it. It's a large study. It was nicely done for the most part. What I find really interesting is that age-adjusted D-dimer evidence has been around for about 10 years. It's not a fringe idea. It's fairly easy to understand and it's even easier to calculate. I am surprised that it's not built into policies in ED more. So I've had a good look at our current Westmead policies and it's not included with that. And I can tell you it's not included in our day-to-day practice except for individuals who are familiar with the evidence and what they would choose to do with their own clinical decision-making. I think it's very relevant because it would be really nice to be able to reduce the number of scans in people. So we know that a CTPA is roughly the equivalent of five years background radiation Plus, you've got the allergy risks of contrast. You've got the risks of contrast nephropathy if you're a big believer in the danger of those things. I think the jury is still out on that. There's the costs involved. It's time taken for a potentially very unwell patient to be out of ED. It has a lot of knock-on effects both clinically and financially and flow within the emergency department. So I would be interested in doing something like an audit with this. So if you looked at the number of CTPAs over, say, uh, a couple of years that could have been avoided had we done an age-adjusted cutoff. I think providing evidence of benefit in a multifactorial manner, saying, well, these are the potential you know, patient-centred benefits, um, then you've got system-centred benefits, decreased length of stay. Yeah. It's interesting, though, I sort of sometimes wonder if I had the prototypical 75-year-old short-of-breath patient with undifferentiated etiology, which is far and away probably the most common clinical presentation we see in that particular age cohort with shortness of breath. Um, I sometimes wonder, it would be interesting, yes, to see whether the CTPA could be avoided based off an initial D-dimer for the diagnostic modality of a a PE as the question, but I wonder how many of those patients actually go on to get CT chests anyway as part of their diagnostic workup because they do remain so undifferentiated. But whether or not that CT has to happen in the emergency department, does it have to happen urgently? Yeah, and I guess it would be disposition changing in the sense that it would be under a particular team versus maybe something that could be managed under an Exactly. Un- and yeah. it also, if you're looking for a PE that evidence tells you isn't going to be there, it pulls focus from what could be the actual diagnosis and yeah. it takes you longer to find out about something else while yeah. you're busy focused on the PE. No, of course. And I think you've obviously got yeah, the length of stays that, that can that are prolonged, et cetera, et cetera. Caroline, did you have any thoughts on, on the paper and how you thought maybe you could apply it day to day on the floor? So I think I agree with Arwen in that this is something I've heard mentioned on the floor, even from residency, you know, oh, we can just apply the age-adjusted cutoff and send the patient home or, you know, in the more unwell one, focus on something else. But I have also wondered why it's never been kind of reflected in policy. And that's why I was quite interested to talk about this paper today. I think the evidence from this paper and the other study back from 2014 make me feel much more confident with potentially applying this more broadly to patients. But I think, yeah, an audit would be an interesting idea just to kind of quantify what we're actually saving. One of the challenges with the earlier paper was that there was some heterogeneity in the D-dimer assay that was actually used. If you've got different assays used in different pathology labs, sometimes within the same area health service. Variability on your number of D-dimer health. Yeah, and so it's like the high sensitive 
troponin argument, which now is obviously very homogeneously used because the state protocol is present, the, the ACS state protocol. But in that state protocol, if you look at the ACS state protocol, there's actually a little box on the side which goes through all the different troponin assays and how to interpret the cutoff values for each and every single one. And I think with the initial D-dimer adjusted paper, that was one of the initial challenges because we didn't know. And to be honest, I don't think anyone knew what assay pathology was using. And then they weren't very comfortable extrapolating from this data to that. And then you've obviously got the issues with the Americans and the Europeans using different analytical assays to what we might use. And that's a very murky area that no one particularly understands. So one of the best examples that I can think of in recent memory was the procalcitonin cutoff for neonatal fevers in kids. Mm -hmm. And the children's hospital was using a completely different assay and running with the same protocol and discovered only when they actively investigated. So that's the reason why there's a lot of hesitancy, I think, to adopt these protocols that are pathology lab-based because of the fact that we don't fully understand the assays used. Now, that was a flaw with the initial study. I don't think that was a flaw with this paper. It sounds like it was a, like the same assay used across. And I think that probably speaks to the fact that pathology is moving forward in that direction and trying to homogenize the way they analyze their blood results. They use the same assay. And I think one of the other things that the 2014 study used was also two different um, pretest probabilities. They used the Geneva and Wells, which they changed uh, this time around. It was just the Geneva score, the modified Geneva. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting you mentioned the Geneva score. Uh, I have to say... Before studying for my exams, I wasn't really familiar with it. I mean, the evidence says that it basically works out the same as good clinician uh, assessment of the patient anyway. But I think if you're if you're tired, if you're junior, if you're not very experienced, if you don't have a lot of other backup, the Geneva score is actually quite good. Again, it's not in our local policy and it's not perfect either, but I think it would be interesting to add that into our ED practice because mm. it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think so. Kit, Harry, did you have any thoughts on Geneva versus Wells? Uh, nothing on Geneva versus Wells, but I, I, I did have a thought just surrounding this topic of whether we have a different cutoff for elderly patients. I, I think we, we fall into a habit in ED of uh, applying all patients to the same rule, even though all patients are different. We find a lot of subsegmental PEs on CTPA. How we treat those PEs is a, a question that comes up all the time, whether we anticoagulate that population and how long for. And we know that elderly people generally may be more susceptible to the risk of anticoagulation. So I wonder whether, irrespective of the kind of cutoff itself, the paper itself, whether we do need to kind of apply different thresholds to different populations based on their risk. Yeah, and I think that's very much part of the theme of what we're going to be talking about today with the pregnancy studies as well. Look, I agree. I think obviously these scoring protocols, the whole point of them is to establish some element of pretest probability so that then you can better define the sensitivity and specificity of the subsequent test you're going to order. And in PE land, it is very much a statistical nightmare in terms of trying to figure out how likely or unlikely something is. And I think that's one of the main challenges that people experience in diagnosing pulmonary embolism. It's a real bogeyman of shortness of breath in the ED. And so we have all these scores, which, like Arwen was saying, in many ways work out to be approximately just as good as good clinical gestalt. But the problem is we don't see many PEs and we certainly don't see PEs consecutively. And so to establish good, like, it's not like, for example, pediatric head injury. Like yeah. You'd probably see a couple of pediatric head injuries a week if you worked in a mixed ED. How many PEs would you see in a week? Well, it's hard to really know, but I think you probably wouldn't see as many as you would head injuries. And so the, the, the time taken to develop astute clinical gestalt in that area in trying to diagnose undifferentiated patients is 
probably a lot longer. That was, that's how I would think about it. And that's why you would see face who have practiced for 20 years still relying on the Wells score. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, he's, uh, I agree, they can be they can be really quite heterogeneous and patients will present in different ways. So, you know, you've got your patients who will come in with typical symptoms, you know, chest pain, shortness of breath, hemoptysis, those kinds of things. But then you've got your patients who just have a tachyarrhythmia, won't go away. They come in with syncope, they come in with massive PEs and cardiac arrest, those kinds of things. So it's Good to have, guess, a legally defensible score to to fall back on. So there's at least some standardization. Yeah. You've got to have, you've got to have it as a differential in the back of your mind for so many different things. It's a, it's another one of those mental checklists to run through yeah. because your the possibilities of the number of things you could be looking at is just so wide. Yeah, and I think also the other strength of the Geneva score and using these common communication tools are that it does allow us to effectively communicate risk and reason to ourselves why we think this patient may be low, intermediate or high risk, which then allows us to communicate with our colleagues, just as tools like the GCS do. Although we misappropriate that in many ways, shapes and forms, it does allow a consistent form of communication. I do find a frustration in a lot of these scores and that that kind of chief statement is, you know, one of the questions is, is this patient most likely to have a PE or is, is, is PE a leading differential? Yeah. I do think there's a lot of subjectivity within these scores. And I think, I think that makes it particularly difficult to use them if you are relatively junior. I think, you know, it introduces a lot of gestalt, which we talked about before. I agree that while it does give us a defensible kind of scoring system in a way, it can also be quite dangerous. Yeah, agreed. It can it can muddy your pretest probability. Yeah, it's one of the challenges with the PE scores, I think, and mm-hmm. one of the reasons why, despite having such well-researched scoring criteria, it still remains diagnostically challenging, unlike other things like ACS, which is so protocolized to the point where we would miss very few acute coronary syndromes if we all followed the appropriate testing regimens. Mm-hmm. PE still has a significant miss rate, depending on sort of what criteria you use. When I became an emergency physician in early 2000s, we're talking about, what, 20 years ago, a senior emergency physician told me in his very wise voice that after doing 30 years of emergency medicine, there are two conditions that were still enigmatic to him, and that were PE and thoracic aortic dissection. I take it that what he meant was that the diagnosis, I guess this is what we're talking about here at the moment, is challenging, and Alan was touching upon that as well. In those days, there were different modalities as well. The CTPA has a lot more radiation, a lot slower to organize, not as available. And there was another modality called VQ that was being less and less used these days. And there was a new kid on the block, which is the D-dimer. After 20 years, we're still talking about D-dimer. How interesting is that? I guess that's the perspective. A D-dimer, unfortunately, is not the best test. So if you have a test that's not so good, you're going to run into all kinds of trouble. So I'll put it back to you guys, who's obviously currently practicing emergency medicine and hospital medicine. How often does D-dimer changes your practice? How easy these days is it just to go down and do a CTPA? One of the challenges with organizing and working in an ED where you're trying to speak to multiple professional colleagues would be, like I said, that justification of what your impression of the risk is. And so I've often ordered a D-dimer to help me facilitate a scan that I probably knew was going to happen anyway. 
if I really sort of reflected on the case. And obviously not in patients who are clinically unstable to the point where I could easily communicate that, you know, my patient sat at 85% on room air, probably doesn't need much more justification, but you just get that niggly sixth sense and you get an intermediate Wells or Geneva score that sort of helps you in either way. Um, in that sense, the D-dimer does help, I, I think, to justify my clinical... As a rule out rather than a rule out. Exactly. Yeah, of course. But then you have to be very careful that in patients who have a higher, a moderate to higher pretest probability, that rate of false negative D-dimers reaches a statistically unacceptably high percentage. So, you know, if you've got someone who's got a history of malignancy, shortness of breath, hemoptysis, I mean, they're already going to be high on the well score, which is why it's so important you use that. But then if you order a D-dimer on that patient and it's negative, the likelihood of- still going to not do a CTPA. Well, yeah. And their risk is so high. Yeah. And the reason you go down that pathway psychologically and mentally is because the rate of false negative is just high. It's like you'd have like a 10% false negative rate of D-dimers just sort of pulling a number out of thin air, but it would be around that mark where it would normally be less than 2%, which is what we would universally deem as acceptable risk. And so that's why those scores fit in the way they do. But I agree with Kevin. I think if I really sat down and went back through every D-dimer that I'd ordered, which ended up in me ordering a CTPA, sort of already knew the CTPA was going to happen, which then sort of does beg the question, why did I do it in the first place? But that's not really well, what you this- you could argue there's, there's an expectation from teams and from radiology if you, when you have to ring up and you justify a scan and they say, well, have you done a yeah. D-timer? And that's probably a reflection of how difficult it is to really nail the diagnosis, right? Like, because, yeah. I mean, the, the, they'd want some more justification that you've sort of gone through with some diagnostic rigor. And in that sense, at least the D-timer does, can help. Completely agree. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, you've got to use D-timer the right way in my yeah. clinical practice, I don't use D-dimer much. I use it when I have a low pretest probability and I use it to exclude PE. And the rest of the times, unfortunate or fortunate, we have a, a pretty good test, very, very good test. There are costs to it. There's some risk to it. But, you know, these days, uh, the risk of CTPA is continue to decline. It's interesting you mentioned the costs. I couldn't find a resource that would tell me how much each CTPA costs us, but I think in about 2017, the Medicare benefit price for a private CTPA was about 500 bucks and a D-dimer was 77. Yeah. So maybe we get it cheaper in hospital because <laughs> we have in-house radiology, but it's it's not inexpensive. Yeah. I know some of the, the IV contrast can cost, I think, at least $100. Yeah. I mean, there are hidden costs there, but I think it's difficult to take extrapolate that and apply it on a patient-to-patient level. That's one of the challenges. No, that's true. Yeah. And you, you wouldn't really let the cost prohibit your you. individual management of yeah. the patient, but I think it's extra weight behind the concept of an audit yeah. of saying if this is something we could use to reduce the number of inappropriate scans, reducing the cost to our mm. budget is an added bonus. Yeah. So, Naveen, any take-home points? At least from my point of view as a resident, it's just I think trying to remember usefulness of a D-dimer to rule out a P and then also just I suppose keeping in the back of my mind the adjusted cutoff. Yeah and I think it might be something given that maybe this particular study may not be on the forefront of every ED clinician's mind all the time I think being aware of of this existing in the world as a thing would be worthwhile mentioning. I think regardless of your seniority in the ED thinking about it as a potential tool you can use and then obviously as Kevin said applying it in the appropriate context in the appropriate manner which is what, what the senior sort of medical staff are there for in the ED, I think is always worthwhile remembering. But I, I thought it was a very good paper and it certainly raises some interesting discussions as to why we don't do this more often. Thanks everyone for that discussion. Nobody gonna take it over. You come my soul. Nobody gonna tell me different. You come my heart. You come
Thank you everyone for making it through to the end of another podcast episode with us here at Network 5. As always, we would love to hear your feedback and any questions you may have. You can contact us via our email, westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. All the links to the papers discussed today will be available in our show notes and we encourage you to go and have a closer read of these two. We look forward to being back in New Year's again soon. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>